Good afternoon. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Paula Penfold and Alan Blackman with me today. Now, let's look at what the new incoming Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, will change, if anything. He said the cost of living and inflation will be central considerations. Quoting, I know that some New Zealanders feel that we are doing too much, too fast, and I have heard that message. And there has been a hint today there may be some change around tax. More on that soon. Carmel Sepulone has been chosen as the incoming Deputy Prime Minister, the first Pacifica person in that role. Calvin Davis will stay on as the Labour Party's Deputy Leader. With us is Associate Professor Grant Duncan from School of People, Environment and Planning at Massey University. Grant, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. What do they represent, do you think? How different will they be? Uh, well, in a sense, it's everything and perhaps nothing. Uh, quite a significant change of leadership uh, with both Hipkins and Cipollone. Uh And Hipkins talking about a reprioritisation and a focus on the economy. But Dern had already signalled that that kind of thing was going to happen late last year anyway. Uh, but I guess with uh, Hipkins in charge now with the change of leadership, that licences perhaps a more significant change than Ardern may have been able to achieve on her own. I don't know. I found something you wrote very interesting. Uh, has it necessarily been raised? Uh, can I raise it? You said, look, mm-hmm. can uh, Labour win back the support of those middle-round voters who've shifted to the centre-right? You say it appears that many of those who've swung away from Labour actually liked Ardern. Yeah, this is the ironical thing that um, people aren't necessarily switching from Labour to National, as far as I can tell anyway, necessarily just because uh, National has a new leader and maybe they feel disillusioned with with, uh, Dern's leadership. I do think uh, that there is an element of disillusionment about Labour policy that's going on in that as well. So, um, yeah... To some extent, then, uh, Labour's uh, task for the next eight months or so until the election, it's not very long, uh, is to um, make some significant reprioritisation of policy, but also return to the middle ground of what New Zealanders are actually concerned about right now. And their task, really, I don't know whether they can achieve it, but their task is to prove to those swing voters that they really have heard and that they're doing something about it. All right, we'll talk... uh a piece of policy in a minute, but uh, Paula, what's your take? I'm interested in that, that bit that you pulled out just then, Wallace, about um, the fact that there are many swing voters who have walked away or intend to walk away from Labour but actually like Jacinda Ardern. I also think that there's, I, I don't know whether they're swing voters or not, but there's also such a proportion of complainers who seem to blame her single-handedly, her personally, for every single thing that they think is going wrong. So it would be interesting to see whether there's any shift in that kind of dynamic now that she's been replaced and the things that they hold her personally responsible for um, are now going to be dealt with by somebody else. Will that fix the issue? I don't don't know. But it's been quite an extraordinary level of the personalising of issues in politics to me. Mm. Paul, you've really put your finger on something important there, personalisation, and I in a way, that was perhaps uh, the success factor that Jacinda brought to the role early on when she first became leader of the Labour Party in 
2017 and the great job she did, for example, around the mosque shootings when she really did manage to unify the country, those success factors are now in a a way turning into a liability, you know, because there's, as you rightly say, there's perhaps been too much focus on her and perhaps rather irrationally uh, due to that personalisation, people blaming her for just about everything. And so arguably um, she's done uh, the Labour Party a favour by stepping aside in terms of their uh, potential for success at the election. Ellen. I see that there's um, some sort of similarity between the UK and New Zealand in this respect. Given the last election, um, you know, Boris won that massive majority in the UK and um, Jacinda won, you know, similarly a massive, you know, unprecedented majority under MMP here. And um, they both seem to have fallen out of favour fairly quickly after sort of getting those massive majorities. And, and, you know, the question then becomes why, I guess. Um, You know, people have pretty short memories. Remember, you know, way back during the pandemic and lockdown and everything. And, you know, as far as I could see, the entire country was behind Ardern um, with all of that. And boy, in, you know, basically a couple of years, everything seems to have just gone. All that goodwill and everything has gone. And I don't know why. Not really. Um, So, you know, if you've got any answers to that, Grant. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting comparison. Of course, uh, Johnson won famously in tw- late 2019 in the winter mm. election um, with the slogan, Get Brexit Done. And I think he tapped into uh, Britain's frustrations with the Brexit process. Uh, and he said, look, I'll, let's just get this done. And, and of course, the other factor there was uh, some uh, negativity about uh, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, mm-hmm. Uh but yes, how people's fortunes change, um, and now Boris's career has, has uh, changed quite significantly to the level of Pat's grace. And, um, but yeah, they're two quite different personalities, but again, I guess, yes, it comes back to the, 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 the excessive these days, excessive uh, focus on the prime ministerial position or presidential mm. in the US, a yep. lot of personalisation going on. Right. Well, on, on just one final point before we move on, on personalisation, what about uh, the, the so-called optics, I guess, Grant? Here you've got a guy who feels very comfortable in a black hoodie, very comfortable in a hat <laughs> and wraparounds. I mean, quite something. He obviously does a bit of DIY. He's a sort of person you could see down at your local Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> Right, you know, no, and it, remi- exactly. it actually reminds me of John Fetterman, you know, the congressman, you know, and he stands up. Everyone's in these really crisp suit and tie. Here you've got John Fetterman, and again, a black hoodie. <laughs> well, yes, there was a bit of theatrics there, perhaps I have to say, but I, I think the differences are first of all that uh, Hipkins is not going to have uh, the kind of inter- international celebrity factor that uh, Jacinda brought to the role. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we're, we're better off without that kind of thing at the moment, that sort of distraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep in mind that when, when we were going through the COVID process, Hipkins was brought in to deal with some significantly, uh, some underperforming ministers and to take over their, their portfolios in um, health and police. And so it seems to me that he's proven himself as a solid fix-it guy. You know, he's the guy you bring in uh, when things aren't going well, and, and now that talent, if you like, is being needed at a higher level, things aren't going well for Labour. That's absolutely true. You can tell just from the opinion polls. 
and they brought him in to, to perhaps oh. to fix some of those problems. Very good, Grant. Kia ora. Thank you for your time again. That's uh, Grant Duncan there. Now, uh, Chris Hipkins did say the focus on uh, bread and butter issues will be the thing, like the cost of living, and he's hinted changes to New Zealand's tax system might be on the way. He said this on News Hub's AM, hinting tax changes could be on the cards, quoting, we should always look at how we can make the tax system fairer with us as tax partner and Price Waterhouse Cooper board member Jeff Nightingale. Kia ora, Jeff. Kia ora, Wallace. So making the tax system fairer, that's what he uh, said, whatever that means. I mean, what do you think he might mean by that, Jeff? Yeah, well, fair is, is in everyone, you know, everyone has a different view of what fair is. But yeah. um, I think what um, I think what the, the new Prime Minister is referring to is is perhaps <coughs> increasing, <coughs> excuse me, increasing taxes on capital and possibly recycling that in the form of lifted um, lifted social assistance or lower tax rates at the lower incomes. I suspect that's what's behind his comments. All right, Paula? Has he said anything much yet about uh, superannuation, the age of superannuation? Has anyone seen, have you seen any of that? Not that mention? I've seen, Paula. Mm, no. Mm. Mm. Uh, he, he's being... I mean, as you would be, it's his first day job, isn't it? He's being very circumspect, isn't he? So people, you know, media organisations are pulling out various headlines and making stories about, you know, things such as... He actually actually hasn't really said very much at all so far. Okay, well, here's what he did did say. He said, quoting, you shouldn't have to be on a six-figure salary to buy a new house, unquote, Jeff. What is that? Capital gains tax? Yeah, well, I'd be surprised. I mean, obviously, um, Jacinda Ardern ruled out capital gains tax in any government that she led, and, and that, that commitment has now lapsed with her resignation. Um, but I, I, I doubt Labour are ready. I mean, what um, the new Prime Minister Hipkins did say was that they would stick to their commitment that apart from the 39 cent tax rate, they wouldn't put up taxes this cycle, this electoral cycle, but they'll have to take a tax policy into the October election because Nationals got one, the Greens have got one, even Tops now announced theirs. So Labour will need a tax policy and it'll be interesting to see what they where that heads. Yeah, one thing you did make mention of was um, sort of, you know, people who are working multiple jobs and, you know, struggling to get ahead or even just stand still. Um, so as a, as a tax expert, um, maybe you could tell me whether... It still is a situation that you get taxed at a higher rate if you've got a different job. Is that is that correct? It used to be yeah. that if you had one job, it was taxed a certain rate, and if you had another job, it was taxed at a higher rate. And that seems yeah, to me an obvious place to start, maybe. Yeah, it, you're right. That's secondary tax, but it's it's only a withholding tax, and it does all get flushed out in the end of year when you when you do your true up, um, when inland revenue you do your automatic calculation. Yeah. Um, but I think the point you're raising there is, I mean, if you wanted to put money into the hands of working New Zealanders, it, it's the 30 cent tax rate that cuts in at 48,000. That's, right. that's the highest because yeah. I think the average wage now, I haven't looked it up, but I think it's about 52,000. Mm-hmm. So, so an average wage earner in New Zealand is paying a very high marginal rate of tax at 30 cents. And that's probably if you wanted to put money into people's hands where where I would focus. And then, then of course, you've got to fund that from somewhere. <laughs> it's not a zero-sum right. game. You've got to find the extra revenue somewhere else. So yeah. that, that'll be the challenge. 
Very interesting indeed. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, and we'll watch the space on that. Uh, that's Jeff Nightingale there, tax partner and Price Waterhouse Cooper board member there on what possible tweaks to tax we might see. 20 past for the panel. Uh, you are with uh, Wallace Chapman and we have Paula Penfold and Alan Blackman with me today. Now, it's been a tragic weekend in the water in Tamaki Makaurau. Yesterday afternoon, the drowning toll rose to six when a person died following a water related emergency. Three earlier deaths occurred between Friday and between, well, on Friday and Saturday. The evening before, a man and woman died after they were pulled unconscious from the water by bystanders at Narrow Neck and Big Manly on the Whangaparoa Peninsula. And this adds to an already very bad drowning toll, adding the calls to to more. Now that includes mandatory swimming lessons at school through to year eight, is what some are calling for. Managing Director Skills for Life, Jackie Foster. It was us. Jackie, welcome. Hi, how are you? Very good. So, look, there was one common factor in the six Auckland drownings since Friday, unpatrolled beaches. All six drownings happened at beaches where lifeguards aren't stationed or where patrols had finished for the day. So, something to address first up? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. You know, it uh, does come down to, I think, that we... Um, individually need to be very aware of where we're swimming. It needs to come back down to us as um, individuals. There's a lot of these uh, places that where they have, or certain people um, have got into trouble. Um, there was, you know, a, a very not a lot of people swam there. So we need to be very vigilant on where we go and where we swim. So explain to us your motivation for highlighting the issue that we need a lot more swimming focus uh, at schools in the school curriculum. Oh, look, at the moment, you know, I go into schools and neutralise school pools, and I have done for many years, 2007 is... Two thousand and seven is when where I started. Um, you know, over the last seven years, um, you know, over one hundred and fifty pools, school school pools have closed in Aotearoa. You know, in the, sorry, really? the last seven years, Jeez. yeah, in the last seven years, it's um, and it's due to the lack of funding. I'm seeing a lot of it. You know, I've been in a lot of schools and they've struggled to keep their pools open. It's it's not good. It's just scary. And um, I'm, you know. The government needs government needs to support. Um, I believe these schools and and their pools. Okay, so we'll have to follow up on that. 150 school pools have closed in uh, New Zealand in the last year. We'll come back seven, to that. Seven years. Yeah. Uh, seven years, rather. Sorry, Jackie. Now, Paula. So, Jackie, does that mean? I mean, when, when my kids were at school and the and the pool had closed down, they were bused to somewhere else. Are they still going to? Um, other centres, other pools to to have their swimming lessons up to to year six at this point? Yeah, um, most schools actually get um, some sort of a budget um, within the MOE um, funding, but uh, they can uh, spend that budget overall within their school. Um, And basically it's like as long as they are included in the water activity uh, within the school, um, that's, you know, ticking that one box. But what it really needs to do, what we really need to do, is we need to separate the MOE fund for every school to fund that pool. You know, there needs to be a separate, um, I believe, um, you know, budget for that. 
Mm. And another two years' worth of funding for it, for for the children, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yes, there is. um, But, you know, we as, you know, I don't know, back back when I was at school, I spent a lot of time in the pool, and I think our children are not getting that time. Um, Mm. That's the crucial thing, and that's where I really push for what these school pools are so, you know, um, essential to have for our tamariki. It's just, um, yeah, spending time in the water, you know, just learning, playing hours and and, um, having fun in the water. You know, they're missing out on those crucial schools. And we can do, uh, you know, I go into schools with funding. We do a two-week program each year for that school. It's just not enough. Right, okay. Alan? <clears throat> yeah, um, I mean, I find that 150 pools closing of a seven-year statistic, that's just uh, uh, astonishing, just mind-blowing, um, and that mm. seems utterly crazy. Um, could I make a point here? I mean, it's all very well, and, you know, it's it's great that these kids are being taught to swim years one to six, but they're being taught to swim in, in pools, and in pools mm. where they can generally touch the bottom, you know, yep. most of the way along. Would it be possible, would it be a good idea to actually get them out into the sea, get them supervised there and get them out right. into the sea, into the waves, po- maybe, you know, point out what a rip looks like or, you know, all of that sort of stuff, the sort of things that they're actually going to come across because, you know, they might be great in a pool, you, you dump them in out of their depth beyond the breakers, you know, and their history. So uh, I know it would be a difficult thing to organise, but... Um, Jackie. Know, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of schools or schools that are near the sea actually uh, do, um, you know, ha- you know, have that experience beside the pool, uh, beside the sea, I should say. Okay. Um, and it's actually yes, that, that's a great um, aspect of moving forward to obviously get them used to rough weather and you know um, that side of it. You're totally um, correct in that area. But mm. um, with this, when I go back to school pools, I just think it's crucial that they spend a lot of time in the water now. I don't know. Everyone says to me, why do you um, feel comfortable? You know, I can go and swim a 5K in the sea um, and I feel comfortable. I feel quite at ease. And I think a lot of that is, comes back to I've spent hours and hours as a child playing around in the water and a lot of our tamariki don't get that. So that's where the school pools come in handy. Um, and I believe that, yes, um, mixing it up and also um, obviously taking them to the beach and um, that sort of stuff, you know, um, yeah, programs would yeah. be great. Yeah, yeah. Linda, Linda says there will never be enough money for school pools. My husband's school has to repeatedly refill the pool after vandals pull the plug, $3,000 worth of chlorine each time. As I understand it, Jackie, school pools, um, they're expensive. Oh, absolutely. This is why we see uh, the school pools closing down. You know, it all comes back down to funding, um, lack of funding, I should say. And... um, you know, when you get vandalism and you get that, um, we I've been in a school, yes, um, that I do have um, on the North Shore, that, you know, as the low death island, they've had vandalism, um, you know, but I believe that there needs to be, um, that that could be corrected if we put the bigger fence around or, you know, okay. just um, throw money at it a little bit more, you know, that, that could hmm. be a sort of thing that we can look at, but yeah. <sighs> 
Very good. That's Jackie Foster there, Managing Director for Skills for Life. Kia ora, Jackie. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, now, um, da- Daniel says, as a former teacher, I would advocate for swimming lessons to be done after school at council pools. Teachers have too much on their plate. The logistics involved, busing classes mm. or whole year groups for lessons is huge mm. because most school pools are decommissioned. It offers... Very little in the way of actual swim time, let alone meaningful one-on-one teaching. Half days are spent for 30-minute swims, and this has a big impact on teaching the prescribed curriculum and class time. Look around the panel on this. I don't know. I, I can recall at uh, Manurewa East School in the, what, late 70s primary school, there was a pool, and uh, I, I can only recall it being extremely cold. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure how much swimming time I did get in, just being very cold, mm-hmm. but I, I guess I learned the basics. What about you, Paula? Can you recall um, swimming at school? Yeah, yeah. At my primary school in Hamilton, there was a school pool, and we swam in it a lot. And it was always open during the holidays too. But the thing that I I want to raise is the issue of uh, uh, signs at beaches because um, mm. Uputuri Beach, where there was this terrible tragedy last week, I'm very familiar with, and it's oh, yeah. always been a very dangerous beach, and a lot of people have drowned there over the years. Um, uh, you know, and can I please send my condolences to the family in this particular instance? It's utterly heartbreaking reading the stories coming out. But at beaches like Aputuri, there is no signage at all to say that the water is dangerous. There's nothing to to God. warn people that they're about to enter a really, really dangerous uh, swimming beach. So, you know, I understand we can't afford to patrol them all, but maybe at least we could put some signage up. <laughs> One would think that would be the simplest thing to do mm. before we get on talking about any of this. Just put some blimmin' signs up. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. To Can't be, be that hard, surely. <laughs> what about you, Alan? Um, yeah, Dunedin North Intermediate. Um, they had a pool, and so our primary school would bust down there, go for swimming lessons and everything. I still can't really swim, so terrible to admit. But, um, yeah. So, Yeah. Yeah, you take real care when you are in the water I in the beach. Don't go into the water that often. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, you're on the panel on RNZ National with me, Alan Blackman and Paula Penfold. Uh, to come very, very soon, in about a couple of minutes' time. What gig did you go to? Concert, music concert, that affected you so much that you broke down crying.